Okay. Hello and welcome to the new episode of the Plants and Pipette podcast. Hi, guys. Hi. Um, here we are again. Uh, my name is Joram. I'm here with Tegan. Yeah. Hey, that's me. That's Tegan that you hear there. And uh, we brought to you, just like uh, in all of our episodes, as you know, <laughs> we brought to you two papers um, that we will uh, discuss about from the world of plant molecular biology. Because we're both uh, molecular biologists and we are really excited about plants. So this is our little podcast on it. And um, yeah, I think we just jump right in, right? Yeah, I think we start with the journal club kind of format. So. Exactly. So the first thing, uh, the first paper that I brought today, uh, let me pull up the author list so because I, I like to mention always like who is doing the research. And the first paper that I brought today is called Urine Effects on Grass and Legume Nitrogen Isotopic Composition, Pronounced Short-Term Dynamics of Delta-15N. Which did, did you choose it mostly for the use of the word urine in the title? Uh, exactly. That was exactly why I chose it. Um, it is from Bettina Ton, Ina Porat, Fernando Alatanzi and Johannes uh, Isselstein. And they are mostly based at the University of Göttingen in Germany. And yeah, obviously when I was looking for paper, and it's from PLOS One, from the journal PLOS One, uh, when I was looking for papers, obviously it struck my eye because you don't see urine mentioned that often in paper titles. And um, because Joram's going for the full German theme today. <laughs> so you can't see, but we're also like drinking the Bavarian beer and eating the Vorst and all of this stuff. Exactly. This is it's theme day today. <laughs> German theme. It's very German today. Um, and so what they did in this paper is that they looked at the nitrogen cycle um, so, Tegan, why is the nitrogen cycle? <laughs> it's, it's, it's a little bit weird that we do this little questionnaire thing, but what do you know about the nitrogen cycle? Like, why is it important for plants? I know nothing about the nitrogen cycle. Damn no, it. I mean, <laughs> yeah, trying to, try to like shift his introduction onto me. Um, <laughs> I guess my basic knowledge is this kind of idea that most of us are useless at getting nitrogen from the atmosphere. There's tons of nitrogen, like nitrogen is the main gas in the air, but we're bad at getting it and plants are also bad at getting it. So we rely really um, strongly on microorganisms basically to get nitrogen into a form that plants can use and then we animals can use by eating them. Yeah, and nitrogen is super important because it's it's part of all uh, proteins, many other molecules in the body uh, or in most living organisms um, heavily rely on nitrogen. It's also part of the DNA, right? Do I say bullshit now? It's in the bases, right? They uh, have nitrogen in the DNA bases. Um, <laughs> Whoa. I'm, I'm fairly sure. Let's just leave it at that. Like, I think... Like, the podcast was very interesting, but not very accurate. <laughs> Mister, we'll get by again. <laughs> nitrogen is just a very important molecule. Molecule, um, it's not a molecule. Nitrogen in the air it's is, an is a molecule that is important, but the elemental nitrogen is really important. Um, yeah, and there's, as you said, there's this this um, nitrogen cycle that's often you find it in textbooks. You have the nitrogen in the air, and it has to somehow get into organic compounds, and that happens through microorganisms. And also plants use it, and you might know it when you use fertilizers. Um, a big part of fertilizers use uh, uh, contain nitrates or ammonia um, as the compounds that plants can uh, can take up. This is like another part of the German theme of the day, right? Because I think this. Um, original ability to make nitrogen in a very affordable way for plants True. is also a German invention. Exactly. Well done, Jana. <laughs> That's why I chose it. I um, pushing the agenda today. Yeah, and so 
plants need nitrogen and they mostly get it um, through um, they have to fix this inorganic nitrogen and they can't really do it themselves uh, they can only do it when uh, they can only absorb ammonium uh, nitrite and nitrate and I had to actually look up what uh, nitrite and nitrate uh, is uh, what the difference is because I knew these are oxygen nitrogen combinations and nitrite is um, NO2 and nitrate is NO3 um, so I'm nodding wisely in the back. <laughs> yes, I knew that. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I am not a nitrogen expert, but uh, before <laughs> no, this, <laughs> before I started researching this, obviously now I am. I know that it's, for example, in DNA. <laughs> and um, yeah, and ammonium is the uh, NH3 or NH4 plus um, uh, molecule or part of a molecule. Uh, so how do plants actually get this? Um, so we said already, like most plants rely on microorganisms to fix that. And there's some some organisms in, in the soil, for example, that uh, can uh, fix uh, the nitrogen. But there are some special uh, plants that have that gone, have that have gone even a step further. So uh, have you heard of legumes? Yes. Um, and what is so special about them? Uh, they tend to form these uh, relationships, mycorrhizal. Yeah, is that the right word? Yeah. Um, with bacteria, which can fix nitrogen. So they make these little like nodules on their roots, which act as a home for the bacteria. And the bacteria basically gives them some nitrogen. The bacteria can fix it. And I think in return, they give some sugars too. Yeah. yeah so the they pretty much swap carbon for nitrogen. Symbiosis, baby. Exactly. And one of the most, uh, I don't want to say the most efficient ones, but there's definitely, it's it works very well and it gives legumes a big advantage. Um, and... Uh, th that's why you see it now in this. It's pretty widespread in in legumes. Or there's, I found more species that do it now than I thought there would be, especially the one that uh, they use in this study. But there's also um, this traditional farming idea that you have like rotation of your fields of the crops, and every third year or however many. I, I'm not so good with the farming, but you plant legumes um, instead of a crop, and this um, will then they're allowed to like fix all this nitrogen and then they break down and this will then enrich the soils yeah. again with nitrogen. Or sometimes people put um, pumpkins or um, uh, what's the word in the, the zucchini on compost heaps. So they sort of help with fixing nitrogen and then later on you like put uh, compost the leaves and you have more uh, accessible nitrogen in your compost and later on. At least I've seen many people do that. Uh, we also did that on our compost heap. We had like massive uh, pumpkins um, because it sort of helps to convert the, the nitrogen into accessible fo uh, forms. And um, yeah, so that uh, I said already that with that, like there's one way to get the nitrogen there, that's the de uh, decomposition in compost heaps. Um, we have the fixation through bacteria. What else gives uh, g gets nitrogen into into the plants or into fields especially? You have to go wild guess here and say urine. Urine yes. is the answer. <laughs> Yes, urine. And in general, animal waste products, um, they are rich in urea, which is a, a form of uh, a, a molecule containing nitrogen. And um, you see that when you, when manure is spread on fields, and, and um, that's also like an ancient technique to enrich, like to fertilize the land, is to just use animal waste products and put them on the fields and then have used the nitrogen in the waste to grow the plants on it. And this is what they looked at in this study. Um, they looked at the effects of uh, cow urine on grazing or on grasslands used for grazing, so on p pastures for, for cows. 
And uh, one thing that they looked at is the enrichment of 15N. And now it gets a little bit more complicated and I hope I'm not getting mixed up in here. So I try to, to keep it basic. So nitrogen, like all elements or many elements, uh, exists in several isotope, uh, as isotopes. So the same element with different amounts of nutrients in this uh, atomic core. And this gives them slightly different properties. Like some isotopes are radioactive, but mostly they are just um, different in the weight of the atom, which then when it comes to um, molecular processes, this tiny weight difference of one neutron can make a difference in biological processes. And this is also happening in, um, in animals and they prefer preferentially enrich this 15N isotope. So the slightly heavier nitrogen atom um, is more enriched than you would find it in nature, in the, in, in the air or in other um, biological processes. And so this is something that researchers then use to follow the source of nitrogen in um, biological system and ecosystems and also in geosciences. So when I looked this up, I found that this is for people who study, don't even look at the living things, but just look at sort of the, the dead matter and the, f the cycles and flows of dead matter. There, this uh, 15N is something that they follow. And um, yeah, the, the one thing that will come up a couple of times now is the delta 15N, which is the ratio of 15N to 14N. So stuff that comes from animals has more 15N than 14N or has a higher ratio of 15N to 14N. Why is that? Um, because animals enrich the, f like in, in the metabolism of animals, the 15N is preferentially integrated in molecular processes. So their do waste products contain more of it. But do we, do we have an idea of why this is happening? Like, I mean... And I couldn't find anything really why this is happening when I looked for it. Um, there's just that several processes have um, pref uh, preferences of which of these two nitrogen uh, types, these isotopes they use. Okay. So um, later we will also see um, that when the ammonia degrades and becomes gaseous, uh, goes into the gaseous phase, gaseous, so yeah. gaseous phase, then um, this is preferentially done with 14N. So if you have a mixture of 15N and 14N, the stuff that goes into the gaseous phase is 14N, while the stuff that remains is rather 15N. And in this case, it's probably a physical property because of the difference, like this very slight difference in weight. Um, but then also enzymes have different preferences for isotopes. So um, something that even researchers who use isotopes for labeling sometimes run into problems that the enzymes prefer a certain isotope and so the label is not incorporated evenly or comparatively to the other isotopes. Um, and apparently this 15N uh, is a very good marker that is used to follow nitrogen and to ac uh, assess, for example, if you have a sediment uh, in a lake and you measure the nitrogen content in there, you can, through the ratio of 15N to 14N, you can say where this nitrogen came from. Did, did it come from like manure, from fields? Is it wash off from, from agriculture? Or is this something from uh, uh, microbial processes? Um, and this is mo mostly where it's used. And this is also where this paper is uh, looking at. Um, yeah. So what they were interested in now in this study is when you look at these nitrogen cycles, whether the um, the relationship is that simple that if you have a cow that pees on a plant or on a, on a patch of, of land, 
that immediately the 15N from the, um, the nitrogen from the cow is immediately taken up into the plants, um, which is an, this, this is a basic assumption that is used when other researchers go in fields and they sample uh, plant material or uh, dead um, organic material and they look for these 15N levels and then they draw conclusions from it. Um, the, the assumption is that the urine immediately has an effect on the nitrogen level in the plants. Mm -hmm. And this was something that they wanted to test because if this would not be the case, much of the research on these nitrogen cycles would not be true. Would be They would have a problem there. And um, yeah, so they did pr a very simple um, experiment. They uh, in the in the greenhouse they had two species: a, um, a grass Glolium perenne, which is a, a classic um, uh, grass, I think a rye grass um, that you find in many European um, pastures, and they had Trifolium repens, which is a legume, which is a um, Oh, no, I, I, a clover, a type of clover. And this one can also fix its own nitrogen then with, this with, has, it, with this its has symbiotic the, bacteria. Exactly. Mm -hmm. This is the legume with the symbiotic bacteria. And they compared these two because they thought the one of them is really good at fixing nitrogen already, the legume, and therefore maybe the response of it is different in when it, uh, so it doesn't takes need so much of the nitrogen because it's already got plenty, something like this, huh? Exactly. Maybe it has already plenty. And also one of the hypotheses that they um, postulated in the beginning of the experiment is that some of the nitrogen is taking up uh, through the air in the, in the plants uh, through ammonia, which is a gaseous. Um, it hits the leaves and then the leaves can take it up and incorporate it into, the, into their system. And legumes have a higher level of nitrogen in the leaves already and therefore they are less likely to take up more nitrogen from the air because they have already some. Um, and so they wanted to see, uh, test with that is different. Uh, they postulated the hypothesis that legumes are less likely to take up nitrogen from the air um, than a regular grass would be. Um, and then they just poured cow urine over the pots in the greenhouse and then they measured um, this delta That's 15 like a student M. definitely getting that job. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's urine time, Jim. Off you go. Go water the plants with the urine. Yeah, I, I would not want to work in that uh, greenhouse when this experiment is going on. <laughs> Imagine like smelly. you're doing your ex other experiment on the side and then the guy comes around and pours I mean, just Also, he's like walking from the cow, the lab, wherever they're getting the cow urine from, like just walking around with a, with a glass full of urine, right? Like, you know. <laughs> I imagine like uh, that in the institute, they just have an institute cow that they use for that. Yeah. Like other institutes, <laughs> they have like a billiard table or maybe like a, a but gym I mean, equipment. How, like, it's Bessie the cow. How are they collecting her urine as well? She's got to be like, have a little like system to collect her pee. And then, She's trained. She goes yeah. to the bathroom. <laughs> yeah, Bessie goes to the bathroom. Jim collects it and then feeds the plants whose name are Fred and George. Okay, we've set up a system. Yeah. Yeah, so they just test, tested that and then they did uh, measured two time points, an early and a late time point, and they measured the delta 15N, so the ratio of 15N to 14N in the leaves of these, uh, of these plants. Um, and this was already the entire ex experiment. Um, and the hypothesis was, was that after they applied the urine, after who was a gym went around and poured gym. all the urine mm -hmm. Bessie's urine mm -hmm. um, they would first see a drop in 15N in the leaves and then they see an increase in 15N in the leaves so the early time point would have less than the 15N in the leaves 
than the late time point and it's also less than the beginning, the, the first time point, the starting point. And, the, and this is kind of counterintuitive because they thought they should have a, an immediate increase in 15 or this delta 15N because the cow has more of the 15N exactly. than the normal environment. Exactly. So they, w- they would think you pour 15N on it, obviously you see more 15N in the leaves, but mm. they expected uh, in their hypothesis that they see less. And the reason for that is what I mentioned already before, this uh, change into the gaseous phase mm-hmm. that preferentially happens to 14N. So suddenly the urine hits the soil, some of it, um, some of the ammonium in there degrades into ammonia. And um, the ammonia is, is gaseous and it contains 14N and then this is taken up by the leaves and sort of dilutes out all the 15N that was there before and hence the, when you measure the level, you'll see less 15N because you you have a pool of 15N and 14N in the leaves. Okay, hang on a second. I think we have to go back and do that again because you said dilutes out the 15N, but it's diluting out the 14N, right? No. <laughs> let's <laughs> let's go from the beginning. That's why I thought it, this 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 is the complicated part about the thing because the what happens to which pools where. Okay, let's start. Let's start again from. Yeah, we have Jim take some urine from Bessie. Bessie's urine should be rich in 15N. Jim pours the 15N containing urine onto the plants. Yes. My expectation would be that the plants immediately become very enriched in 15N. Yes. Instead, what they saw was that there was a drop in 15N and yeah. then only later there was an increase. Yes. Okay. Why is this? <laughs> that is because the when the 15N urine hits the soil or the mixture that co- is it's richer in 15N than the plant is, um, some of it goes into a gaseous phase and only 14N goes into this gaseous phase. So you sort of get a separation. The mm-hmm. 14N goes in the air and the 15N stays in the soil. Mm-hmm. And now you have two ways the plant can take up this nitrogen. One is through the air, through ammonia that is in the air that gets, goes into the leaves. So it's gaseous ammonia? Yeah. Okay, so this is where I was confused. I was thinking it was like, I mean, it's, it's still in a an accessible form for the plant yes. to take okay yeah so okay. it doesn't go into um nitrogen like n2 molecules mm-hmm. that can't be taken up that is already in the air and the plant can't do anything with it it goes into nh3 which is ammonia which can be taken up by the plant okay. and is gaseous gaseous ammonia okay and this is mostly 14n and not 15n so the mm-hmm. lighter isotope goes into the air and then the plants take this up and this sort of dilutes out the 15N that might be already in the leaves. And so you only have more or less 14N in the leaves. Mm-hmm. And that's the early time point when they take the plants, measure the nitrogen content. Which were the time points? About how long is that after Bessie's um, urine has gone everywhere? Uh, are we I, talking something like hours? Or are we talking No, it's actually, minutes? it was comparatively long. I was surprised myself. Um, let me just find the number. Um... I think it was, uh, now I have to say something smart about nitrogen while I find the number of the, the time points. I think we can just use the magic of editing to get rid of the like pauses, right? <laughs> That's true. Um, can't find it. Fairly late there. Materials and methods. Yeah, I guess. But I don't know where in the stupid format they put the materials and methods. Yeah. Their pot experiment. Early late. 
But they just say early and late. Mm-hmm. 17 days and 32 days. Wait, what? No, this just sounds... I mean, were the, were the plants in some... Okay, so now I'm imagining that the whole greenhouse is completely saturated with ammonia that is effectively Bessie's pee that has been vaporized. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, were the plants in some sort of enclosed box system or was it really like open plants? Because I would think you would need a lot of pee to really change the amount of ammonia in the air. And I mean, there must be in a closed box, right? It, I don't think it was in a closed box, but it was in a closed greenhouse because later they did some co- um, field experiments as well where they just followed cows around and s- uh, collected samples from patches that were irrigated with urine mm-hmm. um, and other patches that were not irrigated with urine and they did sort of the same time I frame. I irrigated with my urine, yeah. <laughs> Good work, Bessie. Okay. And there they saw differences to the measurements in the greenhouse. So the trends were comparable, but the extent of the trends were not as pronounced as in the greenhouse. And they said that it was probably due to the fact that there is no wind in the greenhouse and therefore you have a, a, a more concentrated uh, gaseous phase of ammonia in the mm-hmm. air from the breakdown in the soil. So I guess it's 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 becoming gaseous, but it still has to kind of like rise up uh, like evaporate basically from the soil so it's still kind of a stream coming upwards from the soil towards the plant so maybe the plant can still catch it yeah otherwise i'm just imagining liters and liters of urine I which mean, is I enough to change the the concentration of like to somehow shift the air concentration to, to make this yeah i don't think that they used um huge amounts of urine um but it's also then uh, only a fraction of urine that gets degraded into the like that breaks up into the gaseous phase and stays behind in the soil. Did they have right? a, con- a sort of control experiment where instead of putting something which was fifteen and rich, they put something that was fourteen and rich to see if they saw the same amount of drop? Because this to me, I mean, this drop that they saw, then I mean, they're attributing it to this um, gaseous phase nitrogen, but maybe that's just what's happening as a standard thing. I mean, maybe that's not actually directly related to the, to the cow's urine. I don't think that they did this um, this control. Um, they, just like con- they, they just did the control where they d- didn't use uh, urine. Mm. So they just compared no urine to urine, but they didn't compare, they didn't make um, uh, an artificial mixture of with okay, the same concentrations of ammonia that but only 14N, which would be a good control, but they didn't do that. Oh, but then in the in the no urine control, they're just giving them water, and then yeah. they did they see this kind of dropping behavior, or no, I mean, um, there's not. No, th- uh, as far as I remember, they don't see the the drop there. Um, they there they don't see uh, any um, strong change in the nitrogen amounts. Um, they speculated a little bit about the, they had some problems in their experimental setup because they used a very uh, a, a soil that was uh, um, low in organic matters in there, so it was a very thin soil sort of. It mm-hmm. wasn't there was weren't many nutrients in there, and that would also contribute to the difference they saw in the greenhouse to the ones that they saw in the field, where you have way more like so other sources of nitrogen sure. than just the pea. Mm-hmm. Um, but they didn't check with uh, just for the fourteen N with. Um, a sort of artificial urine. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so within 17 days, they saw that was their early time point. And then th- at 32 days, then they saw um, that was their late time point. Then they saw an increase in 15N in the plants. And it went above the level that they measured uh, before. 
And um, they explain that with that the, the 15N stays behind in the soil and then um, the, either the roots take it up directly or the bacteria in the roots um, transform the nitrogen into um, a form that the plants can take up and then it gets taken up into the plants. But and it's this already process in ammonia, so the plants can take it up directly as well. Yeah, but I think, for example, the urea that is also in the urine, um, that can't be taken up directly ah, okay. by the plants. So you have a mixture of, of nitrogen compounds in there as well. Ah, yeah, and some of them can be taken up directly and some of them only after conversion through bacteria. Yeah, sure. So for mammals, we mostly produce urea. We don't have yeah. so much ammonia because it's quite toxic, I think. Yeah. Yeah, okay. And I think some of the urea also breaks down uh, spontaneously into ammonia. Um, so I, I remember if I opened urea containers, they would smell of ammonium because the okay. because this compound is not uh, absolutely stable. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, and so I guess that's the, that's also part of it. Why why they sampled at this very long time ranges? Like you would imagine a process like this wouldn't take 17 days, but if it's most urea and a fraction of it breaks down into ammonium and a fraction of this breaks down into gaseous ammonia, then um, you see why you need such a long time to actually see something. And did they find a difference between, so they had the, the legume and the grass, did they find a difference between these two species or was it yeah. similar trends? They saw the late time point was very comparable between the two. So both of them uh, in the end took up 15N through the roots. But what both of the uh, what where the difference existed was that the legume did not take up um, as much nitrogen through the um, through the leaves. Okay. So the gaseous phase was less important for them because they uh, hypothesized in the paper that they have already uh, so much nitrogen in the leaves that the concentration gradient between the air and the leaves is um, not favorable for any uptake. So mm -hmm. they don't see the drop because then there is no dilution, and so legumes. Um, they follow more the sort of expected um, idea that they wanted to challenge in this paper that they just increase in 15N over time okay. when, when urine hits them while grasses have this immediate drop and then it is increased. And that was already the, the research pretty much because then um, they saw what they hypothesized um, and then they did some field tests as well where they, as I said, they went into a, onto a pasture and then collected samples from patches that were uh, where cows peed on it and they went to other patches, I guess, on a different field with no grazing cows where they mm -hmm. could be sure that there wasn't any recent, um, any cow that peed on it uh, recently. Urine irrigation, no urine irrigation, irrigation by urine. Um, and then they did uh, uh, some similar measurements, but they didn't do the the numbers were much smaller, and mm -hmm. therefore they also saw differences. And they went into the in the paper, as I said, they explained that probably it is because the the soil is much richer on the pasture. There's more organic matter that decomposes, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and um, also they said it's much harder to track on a field where, where a cow pees <laughs> sure. and when and how much. Like they had this time period that was important to them, mm. and. It's probably it makes a difference if the cow pees multiple times on this, the same patch and they they see the first sure. time and then they don't stand there for 17 days watching. Again, that's <laughs> like that's somebody's PhD project, right? Just like watching cows, like cow gazing. Yeah. Um, the other thing that oh, I cool. personally uh, was a little bit um, surprised by that was that they only use two time points. They have this early and this late time point. And somewhere in the paper, if you look it up, we put the link in the uh, description of the podcast. Uh, if you look it up, they have a very nice curve where they describe their hypothesis with this first drop and then this increase in 15N. But then they only measure two time points and 
for me, for anything, any process that I would have followed in the lab, I would have taken more than two time points if I want to draw such a curve. But uh, I don't know what were the reasons behind it, uh, be, uh, why they chose just these two points, especially in a greenhouse experiment, I would have guessed it. It should be easier to take more time points than that. Yeah, but I mean, there's a difference between doing this very like um, high resolution time course kind of thing and, and kind of testing new hypotheses. And obviously, when you first try something, you have to limit a bit. And I mean, they're also doing field experiments, which is actually quite unique in our field yeah. in our field um, <laughs> yeah. to actually go out into the real world usually we do everything quite controlled so this in itself yeah. is, is really a lot of work to yeah. follow cows and things like that and just to summarize so the the finding and the significance of this paper um is that this delta 15n changes direction like the trend of delta 15n it first goes down and then goes up and this goes against the the, the assumption that was taken before for any kind of uh experiment that follows the cycles of nitrogen um, and so that that was the important contribution and they, they stress in their paper that whenever you want to draw conclusions from nitrogen in the soil nowadays you should um, take this into account that the uptake rates are or that depending on, on the time when you measure you see a different response mm -hmm. um, and it's not only the spatial um, dimension that you have to look at because before they would just con uh, compare like a, a field with cows on it and a field with no cows and then measure nitrogen and say like, look, we have a certain, I don't know, more 15N here. So the cows have a significant contribution to the nitrogen cycle here. Um, and they say it's not as simple as that. Um, yes, that was the paper. It was a little bit uh, complicated with the <laughs> 15 and nitrogen. 14N nitrogen stuff. Mm. And um, now we need to take a pause because I need to go and irrigate. <laughs> okay. Following this nitrogen is so important because when we do agriculture we put a lot of uh, nitrogen into the uh, ecosystems we put them out into the nature and we have uh, if the, all the nitrogen that's not taken up by plants during agriculture on the, on the field can potentially be washed off and then we have this runoff that is a big problem now where um like the eutrophic growth of the algae where you have these massive yeah. like blue green algae blooms and they can completely devastate river systems things like this yeah exactly and this is why it's really important to have whenever you study the, the cycles and the flows of nitrogen that you understand the systems of nitrogen uptake and nitrogen fixation and i think this is what the the researchers in this paper were looking at this very specific uh, answering as one of the small questions in the whole um, world of nitrogen uptake, nitrogen fixation, nitrogen cycles. So whenever you calculate how much fertilizer you need to use, you have accurate measurements. Cool. Yeah. And that was the first paper. And now it's my turn. Yes. What did you bring us? Yeah. So I'm cheating a little bit today because I'm talking about a paper that kind of blew up a little bit. So it's published in Science just this month, actually last month now in January, um, by Paul South et al. And their paper is called Synthetic Glycolate Metabolism Pathways Stimulate Crop Growth and Productivity in the Field. So we're going from cow fields to fields of tobacco plants in this instance. <laughs> and um, yeah, talking about how to increase the yield of plants, which is really a big issue um, for all of us, basically. 
Um, so, yeah, as plant biologists, one of the things we talk about really often, especially when we're trying to justify why people let guess, should... Let me guess, let me guess. <laughs> we have to feed the world. <laughs> we have to feed the world. When we're trying to say, please give us money, here's why our work is actually important. It's it's because we have to feed the world. Um, yeah. yeah, and generally the problem is that the population of the world is growing at this, this quite huge rate still, um, but our ability to make more plant yields, so make more seeds and grains for us to eat, is not increasing as rapidly so in the paper they say that our productivity is increasing at less than two percent per year um which is not enough to feed the growing population and on top of that we have problems where there's less arable land so less land where we can put more um farms on and we have then additional problems of changing climate patterns which can lead to unpredictability so yeah or even loss of of uh, agricultural land right sure yeah and the, the short story is we need more food or it's going to be really problematic very soon um and of course we've already done a lot of things to increase how much yield we get out of plants and the big thing is what Yoram already just talked about today so we're really in a fertilizer topic here mm-hmm. um so you can provide the plants with what they need um so give cow, them cow urine cow urine yeah bessie's urine is what the plants need <laughs> and yeah this was one of the first big development is the ability to make um like artificial like human man-made fertilizers which um really increased the yields but to be honest right now those changes the increased fertilizer and different ways of farming we've basically got to the optimum of that so we we know how to make the best um, plants and the best yield from our plants we've done it so we can't make it any better Um, one of the second things that we could done and have done is actually change the plants themselves and this was the the green revolution which obviously Yoram knows about yeah uh, there was the I don't have, I want to mix up the uh, the the right time for, um, period, but there was the um, more efficient breeding technologies, right? There was in uh, like from the fifties on, yeah, when the plant breeders made huge advantage uh, advances in the way they could select for new crop lines. That uh, they had m- much better like phenotyping capabilities, a better understanding of plant uh, metabolism, so they could very have a focused breeding effort and that led to much, uh, the the increase of yield for, from like modern lines in, in plants uh, for, for agriculture compared to uh, plant lines that are 100 years old is insane. Like if you see sometimes there's like demo plots and you see like wheat, like that's 100 years old, the, the variety and the modern variety side by side. Um, uh, and the difference is astonishing, like how much more yield you have. And they did this in multiple ways. So, I mean, ultimately the aim is to make more seed or grain per plant but they did that by also changing things like the size and the shape of the plant so you want the the plant to be the right shape so that its leaves are facing the sun to get as much light as possible and also so that you can grow lots of plants together um, without them all shading each other so that's the shape and also the size because um, a lot of plants they put a lot of energy into growing tall um, and they could be putting that energy into making grain so actually um, one of the outcomes of the green revolution was many shorter crops and mm-hmm. um, these shorter crops actually put all of their energy into making grain which we then stole from them and ate yeah yeah and this is actually one of the general rules of getting yield from plants so the potential yield of a crop basically depends firstly on how much sun the leaves can get so this can have something to do with the angle of the leaves as we mentioned already um, then the second one is how much of that light they can actually use to make biomass and that is basically photosynthesis in action so how the chloroplasts take the light and use it to make fixed carbon um, which can then become carbon to 
to grow yeah. leaves and seeds and stuff like that. Um, and then how much of the, the biomass that they make, this fixed carbon, is actually put into the seeds that we then eat as opposed to the leaves. And that's, again, what yeah. I talked about, about these shorter plants. Um, and there's been some uh, predictions recently. It's it's really a big focus at the moment that two of those things, so how much sun the leaves gets and how much of the, the fixed carbon gets put into seeds, we've basically already maximized that for, for most of the crops that we eat as, as our primary food sources. And therefore, one of the few things that we can still do is try to optimize photosynthesis. So this comes down to really changing the way plants photosynthesize, making it better. Yeah, so that from that pretty much if you look at the light as as an amount of photons or like amount of energy, how much of that physical energy can actually be made into the chemically fixed carbon energy exactly, that we care yeah. about? So, um, because this is not 100% efficient, right? It's not, it's not, not great. And we don't want to crap all over plants because they're doing an amazing job. And obviously, <laughs> thank we, you, plants. Thank you, plants. We love you. <laughs> we need you. We eat you. We are clothed in you, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but yeah, the main culprit is Rubisco um, as far as being a bit of a useless enzyme. And Rubisco is the greatest protein on earth, is what um, we're going to call it. Um, and it's the greatest not only because it's the most abundant, but also it's one of these um, proteins that's involved in fixing carbon. So yeah. we require. And although it is directly involved in photosynthesis and uh, super important, Rubisco is not actually one of the proteins that collects the light, but it's the one that does the job of um, fixing the carbon dioxide into um, into sugars. So you might remember from like biology classes and stuff, you had always the the equation of carbon dioxide and water uh, goes into the plant and on the other end you get sugars um, and oxygen. But that reaction is actually split and it's split into the light um, dependent reactions and this is the electron transport chain in the thylakoid membrane. So your photosystem one, your photosystem two and they're taking this light energy, capturing it and moving electrons um, through a system, a chain basically of proteins. And in doing so, they also pump protons. And the ultimate aim of that is to make ATP, which is basically the battery, the, the way the cell um, stores energy. Yeah. And then that ATP is used in the light independent reactions, which is where Rubisco comes in. Yeah, and uh, it, Rubisco then um, takes carbon dioxide and then links the uh, carbon dioxide together to form, uh, to, um, to form together with protons to form the carbohydrates, the sugars. Yeah, in a bit of a complex cycle. Um, the first step of that is um, using the carbon dioxide, as Yoram said, and ribulose 1,5-bisphosphate, so RUBP we call it. Um, and just like this is the first fixing um, reaction. Um, the problem is Rubisco is this huge enzyme which basically grabs the carbon into it and can then put it into this fixing reaction. But about one in four times, it doesn't grab carbon dioxide and instead it grabs oxygen. It's yeah. not very good at telling the difference between carbon dioxide and oxygen. I mean, you can't really blame it. These molecules are, look very similar. <laughs> yeah. Um, and this is actually problematic in two different ways. So firstly, if Rubisco is grabbing one in four times oxygen, firstly, it's not fixing carbon. And actually, it ends up losing carbon in the process that ensues. So not only do you not have an, a gain of that one carbon... 25% of the time, but you end up losing it when you then have problems downstream. And the problems downstream is that when oxygen is fixed instead of carbon, um, you have an oxygenation instead of a um, carboxylation reaction, um, you get a byproduct that's poisonous to the cell. And that's 
kind of okay in some ways because the cell knows how to deal with it so um, it can detoxify it but this detoxing involves a loss of energy the loss of fixed carbons and it also involves multiple cellular compartments so this this crappy oxygenation mistake happens in the plastid but then this poisonous byproduct which is glycolate has to get moved from the chloroplast to the peroxisome from the peroxisome into the mitochondria and all back around again before you can fix the whole problem so you've got a lot of energy being wasted trying to detoxify something which you can't just leave there. If you leave it there, the whole yeah. the whole um, plastic is poisoned. Yeah. yeah. But it's not that it, like, uh, they're still in that positive, right? I mean, otherwise the plants wouldn't grow. So in total, they're still carbon fixed, but there's a big loss in there. And this is the big potential big, uh, where you could increase the efficiency of the entire system, right? Like, yeah. So... Um, yeah, there's, there's, there's been a lot of ideas that um, if you can increase how good Rubisco is, you could get an increase in productivity of the plant as a general rule. And some um, predictions in the paper, they say 20 to 50% increase in productivity. I've seen even wilder um, predictions of, of even greater in, increases um, in the productivity. Yeah. Yeah, just as a side note, I've seen actually some some researchers they are spraying um, carbon dioxide in the fields to sort of eliminate oxygen in a certain patch um, to mimic um, an optimized photos, uh, rubisco activity, right? Because if there's no oxygen, it can't take up oxygen instead of carbon dioxide, uh, and that if you imagine that this is just a test, just as, as for for research, but if you would not um, try to make Rubisco better, but instead just take out the oxygen around it, it would requ require ex extremely expensive large-scale um, technology, right, to, to spray carbon dioxide, plus the idea of, like, all the carbon dioxide is not getting fixed, suddenly you're spraying greenhouse gases there. So this, just to illustrate, like, people who try to say uh, uh, fixing Rubisco doesn't really work and we have to do other things, the other things are really, really expensive and hard to do. That's why it's so exciting whenever you see researchers doing this work on Rubisco. Yeah, so... Um, different organisms have also found their own way of getting around these problems with rubisco. Um, so some rubiscos are just naturally better at recognizing carbon dioxide and not recognizing oxygen. Unfortunately, there seems to be a catalytic trade-off. So people have realized that most of the species which have these very, um, I don't know, uh, clever rubiscos, they can recognize the carbon dioxide. Those clever rubiscos are also slow and that's the trade-off. Yeah. So then yeah. you gain something in not having the oxygenation reaction, but you actually lose um, the speed at which the, the reaction can happen. And another alternative is that many organisms have found out ways to get carbon dioxide and concentrate it around their rubiscos so that basically there's a, um, a room filled with carbon dioxide and no oxygen can get in at a very localized. So inside the plant and even inside the chloroplast of the plant, they have these little special um, mechanisms. So carbon concentrating mechanisms, yeah. they're called. Yeah, pretty much what they do in the field, uh, in, the, in the research, but on a molecular level inside the plant with no like spraying of tons of carbon dioxide. Yeah, so many researchers are working on this in different ways and some people are looking at seeing if they can try to um, put artificial carbon concentration mechanisms into plants. But this group's approach was actually something a little bit different. So they basically tried to bypass this natural um, detox um, 
system. So to get rid of this toxic product of the oxygenation reaction, and that's called photorespiration um, in nature. So they basically tried to, instead of fixing the rubisco, they looked at the downstream product and saw if there was a more energy efficient way that they could get rid of clean up that toxic byproduct um, without going through all the, all the different organelles and without wasting as much carbon and as much energy. Okay. Um, and they built in this in this paper, they built on previous work that's already been done in Arabidopsis, which is our favorite model plant. And they also um, built on some previous publications which looked at um, computer simulations of how to best um, bypass photorespiration. And this kind of suggested that they needed to work on optimizing expression of different genes. So this was part of the work. And it's just as a reminder, whenever something is published, it's always building on the work of um, previous groups. Um, mm -hmm. So the group here use um, Nicotiana tobaccum, which is our normal smoking tobacco. Um, and, whoa, gesundheit. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no problem. Um, and tobacco is a model plant species um, in many ways in that it's it's not quite as convenient in Arabidopsis in many ways. It's, it's bigger, it's bulkier, but it, it is actually a crop and it can be grown more like a crop in the field. Um, and it has a few other benefits. So it makes a lot of biomass. Um, and it also has transformable organelles. So, that, so at least the chloroplast of the tobacco has been easily. <laughs> Woo, Arabidopsis, we can do that now too, but previously not so much. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, so these groups looked at um, putting different pathways to bypass photorespiration into the tobacco. And they came up with three different pathways. The first of them involved five different genes taken from E. coli. Uh, the second... Um, pathway involved a gene from Arabidopsis, a gene from pumpkin, and a gene from E. coli. Okay. Um, and then the third one involved a gene just from the pumpkin, the same one, this is a malate synthase, and then also something from Chlamydomonas reinhardtii. So we're really getting a fruit salad of different species um, yeah. genes being put um, into them. And this is because um, these different genes have different abilities and functions, and they also have different um, downsides, I would say. So. Mm -hmm. In the, the second approach, um, they uh, they use this glycolate oxidase from Arabidopsis. So this takes um, the poisonous product glycolate that is produced by the oxygenation reaction and makes it into glyoxylate. And that's all well and good, but unfortunately, one of the byproducts of this reaction is that you get hydrogen peroxide. Mm. And hydrogen peroxide is also poisonous. So then they needed to put in an extra gene to get rid of the hydrogen peroxide. And in this case, this is where the E. coli gene um, is, which is a catalase. And the catalase then breaks down the hydrogen peroxide. So mm -hmm. they're trying to find the best way to quickly shortcut photorespiration, but also not then damage the cells in other way. Okay, so they had these three different pathways by introducing a different sets of genes um, and with different complexity of organisms and amount of um, genes they introduced. Was the, the pathway always um, the same? Was it always the creation of glyoxylate and detoxification? No, no, no. no, no, no it was three so different, completely different routes. Not completely different. So the, the first one is quite different. These five genes from E. coli, it... Um, it goes from glycolate to make glyoxylate, but then it goes to tartronic semialdehyde um, and ultimately makes glycerate, um, which can then uh, be fixed back into um, the CB cycle from my understanding. Um, but this one is quite different. And then the other two somehow overlap a little bit. So your okay. those both um, create fairly directly glyoxylate, um, which can then be made into malate. Um, 
okay. and become uh, basically usable as a form of carbon again. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we're not trying to explain now all of the different intermediate no, go compounds. No, the paper because I think it's just it's it's a <laughs> it's bit true. too insane. The, the take-home message is they've got three different pathways with yeah. different combinations of genes, and each of these pathways should have some benefits and also some potential problems. Um, and then on top of that, they tried different promoter sets um, mm-hmm. because they're not really sure about how much each of these different things need to be expressed. And the final thing, on top of these three designs, each of the three designs, they also added an extra gene in. And this is um, basically a construct, an RNAi construct. So um, this is something that is used to silence. Yeah. So so RNAi is um, a way to yeah, in, uh, silencing a gene. And silencing means turning down a gene expression. And depending on the efficiency of an RNAi, and as its biology, nothing really is is uh, strictly on or off. Um, and so in this in RNAIs is especially the case. So it can sometimes downregulate it just 20%, sometimes 80%, sometimes 95% of gene expression is uh, is reduced. So mm-hmm. you use that whenever you have a gene and you want to have less to nothing of this gene product. Yeah, and so they made an RNAI against the PLGG1. And this is basically a transporter at the edge of the chloroplast. And this transporter is responsible for getting that poisonous product, the mm. glycolate out of the chloroplast on its long journey through the peroxisome and through the mitochondria to become detoxified. So it just takes out the first step of this whole transport chain of getting rid of the compound and so it has to stay in the chloroplast. Yes, so their idea is that if it has to stay in the chloroplast, they'll then force it to use one of their alternative pathways that they've introduced. Yeah, which is quite clever. Um, Yeah, so they did multiple transformations with these different constructs, with these different pathways, the three different pathways using different genes and with kind of different promoters. And then they basically did a screen to see which might be um, the better performing plants Mm -hmm. out of all of their different mixes that they put in. And they did this by basically testing how well the plants would do under um, photorespiratory stress conditions. And this is basically that you have your plants adapted to nice high CO2 where they don't have to worry about photorespiration. And then you very abruptly move them to very, very low CO2. And if a plant has a problem with photorespiration, um, it will basically not be able to deal with that very quick change. It won't be able to adapt fast enough and um, Mm -hmm. your plants will be flagged. So they wanted to find which of the independent transformants, which had different expression profiles of these different genes, would perform the best. Um, And they found already that many of the um, transformants from many of their different constructs performed better than the wild type, the the non-change plants, under this severe stress test, which was really um, reassuring. So um, after this high CO2 and then, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, it's really, really, really low CO2, they had better um, performance of their photosynthesis. Mm -hmm. Um, one one aside here is that they also had plants which only had this RNAi against the the glycolate the, the poison yeah. um, transporter, and those plants did worse under these conditions. Okay, and this is kind of what you expect. So basically, yes. if you suddenly force the plants to have a lot of photorespiration and you stop them from being able to get out their glycolate, they just poison themselves. Yes, yes. Yeah. But they Pretty could... Pretty mean experiment. Yeah. <laughs> Poor plants. <laughs> why um, are you hitting yourself? <laughs> which is, it's mostly what we do as, as plants. Like, yeah. why, why are you hurting it? Oh, wait, I did that too. <laughs> yeah, so um, this RNAi plants did a lot worse, but they could actually 
rescue and even make the plants do better again by having both the RNAi and one of the alternative pathways. Yeah. Okay. And this is kind of a, a good clue that the alternative pathway is is working because yeah. it's stopping the poison and therefore there's some sort of detox happening in yeah. these in these plants. Yeah, because maybe it's important to mention here whenever you de do these experiments, you can't, like, you, you draw out your pathway that you expect to see, but it's extremely hard to really measure life in the plant that this happens. So mm. you have to have these, these control experiments where you take out one part of the system and see if it gets worse or gets better um, to understand whether or not the thing that you put on your on your drawing board if that actually happens in the plant yeah because i mean the ability to for enzymes to work is so dependent on like the microenvironment and if there are like chaperones or cofactors there's so many things that can affect if they work or not and especially in this case where they're taking things from e coli a bacteria and pumpkin and arabidopsis and putting them into tobacco so yeah yeah they didn't have a lot i mean they weren't well, they weren't confident that this stuff would work before they tried it yeah um, so when they already had these positive plant lines, they chose the ones which were the performing the best and they did greenhouse trials. And here they had um, their three alternative pathways. And the first one, the one which had these five E. coli genes, did pretty well in the greenhouse. So it had a 13% increase already in the biomass of um, the plants when grown under greenhouse conditions, so semi-controlled conditions. Um, but when the RNAi which blocked the transporter was not there, this this increase in growth didn't work so mm -hmm. um this suggests maybe um the pathway wasn't strong enough or efficient enough to to pull the glycolate into it unless there was a build-up of glycolate otherwise yeah. it would just go the, the normal yeah. pathway basically yeah. in the second method um this is the one that had um the the arabidopsis gene which accidentally well not accidentally but made this byproduct of hydrogen peroxide that then had to be detoxed by another e coli gene this one they didn't see any change um in the biomass so this was kind of like a not so successful um alternative pathway and the third one was the best of all um they had an 18 percent increase in the biomass and when they had this rnai when they blocked the transporter they had even a 24 percent increase which is which is pretty significant huge numbers yes. yeah okay um, so they did a lot more work on this this, this third um, pathway just because it was the most promising. They looked at the metabolite profiles to see what exactly was happening at different stages. And again, this is just a bit of a sanity check to make sure that what they thought would happen based on the enzymes was kind of happening. And, and they yeah. did see that. So metabolite profile is just when you take, you extract all the metabolites, so all the intermediate steps from these pathways and you measure as many as you can on, from them. And we have pretty good methods nowadays where you can then follow a lot of these very small molecules at the same time yeah so they like measured the level of things like glycolate and then the downstream glyoxalate and then also a few more like downstream things so pyruvate which um the, they made the malate and the malate gets formed into pyruvate um so they could look at this kind of stuff yeah um they also found in these um, alternative pathway three lines that they had an overall increase in photosynthesis, which was measured by the overall um, ability or the rate at which carbon was fixed in these plants. Um, and this could basically come from two things. Either you've got more Rubisco to fix more carbon or you have more carbon dioxide to be fixed. Um, and they did some Western blots, which is basically a protein quantification method. They saw that there wasn't really more... Um, Rubisco in the plants, so it seemed likely that it was going to be more carbon dioxide. Um, and then they did a few other measurements. So um, they they looked at when um, the switch between carboxylation and oxygenation happened. So they basically did different measurements to find out if there was likely to be more carbon dioxide in the plastids of the plants that they were measuring. 
um, and their data suggested that there probably was. And from this, they concluded that probably this comes from the carbon dioxide being, um, the carbon being released directly back into the chloroplast instead of this carbon being lost through mm -hmm. um, different organelles and out of the plastid. And then I think like probably the most exciting about this thing about this paper is that they went from the greenhouse and then did proper field trials. And this is something that we don't get to do very often, um, especially in Europe where we have very strict GMO regulations. Yeah. Um, but they actually grew the plant under um, semi-realistic crop conditions. And here again, um, they saw a 16% increase in the AP1 lines. They, they grew several of them. One of the AP2 lines had some increase, um, but again, the AP3 was a bigger player. So again, 23%, this nearly quarter percent increase in the, the dry mass. And um, they could even link in the AP3 because they have these independent events with different expression levels of the different genes they put in. They could link the better performance with um, better expression of two of the genes, or actually mm. the two genes that they put into that um, alternative pathway. Yeah. Um, they then did a much larger scale trial with the AP3, which was their best performer. And um, they found like on these large scale trials, a 25% increase in the dry mass um, of the plants after the growing season. And when they had the RNAi constructing there, up to 40% increase in the plant biomass, which is- This is unreal in it's increase. It's insane. Um, and to support this, they could also see that the plants had more starch, which is a way that plants store carbon um, during the day. They had 70% more starch than the wild type at the middle of the day um, when they had the RNAi construct in there. So these plants are really, they're just more efficiently photosynthesizing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So they basically had a really, really successful um, strategy, which, yeah. which worked out really nicely. Yeah. Um, they, there's a couple of things we should mention at the end of the paper. Um, they knocked down this one um, transporter. Yeah. And this was a huge increase. So um, the difference was 25% increase in dry mass in the, in the um, third um, pathway without the RNA and 41% with the RNA. So that's, that's quite a big yeah. difference. And they mentioned that the plastid actually has two transporters of um, glycolate. So maybe they could even knock down the second one and get even more increases. This was one of the, the things I mentioned. Why did they use the this RNAi knockout and not one of the like a tDNA or CRISPR knockout, like one of the? My guess is that they didn't want to completely knock it out. They wanted to knock it down. Okay. Um, because if you really have always glycolate, if you can't get any of the glycolate out, if your pathway is not working very efficiently, and they didn't know how well it would work, you would get this poisoning. Okay. And that's what we kind of saw in the um, the AP1 line. I think it was when it didn't have the RNAi. Yeah. It it didn't perform better, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, they also mentioned that often when you have mutants of photorespiration, you have problems with um, the plants, like secondary problems in the plant. And one of them is that they have less responsive stomata, so they're not as good at opening and closing their stomata. And they mentioned that in this um, method, they didn't have any problems with that, which is very cool, because that can lead to um, mm -hmm. other issues. Basically, the plant is not breathing and not releasing water as, as much as it can, yeah. so this yeah. can have a range of consequences. Um, although they did mention that they didn't look for further possible global changes, so they didn't do any transcriptomic or proteomics. Um, yeah. So they say, sure, there could be other um, problems. One downside, they said, is that their pathway did have a higher consumption of um, ATP, so this is this um, cellular energy storage, basically. The normal photorespiration, so that could be um, a problem. Okay. It's, it's clearly um, balanced by the, the loss of the, 
the the increase in the fixed carbon but this is there is a cost there yeah um they also mentioned that the chlamydomonas gene probably uses the electron transport chain um as an electron acceptor um and they also probably have a generation of reducing equivalents so they definitely there are some things which are happening that are different from the the Mm -hmm natural like the balances of reducing power electrons um and atp which are kind of our, our three big things in in um the cell are a little bit different from what they would normally be but clearly based on the so far it doesn't look like yeah. it's a problem um and in fact they mentioned the idea of compound interest that um having a small advantage then allows the plants to grow bigger leaves which then allows them to get even more energy and so you basically have this like uh, yeah, rollover. yeah sure yeah. because suddenly they have much bigger light collectors and yeah so it's like just having a small improvement can actually give more improvement than that that, that amount could directly give it it's like these carry yeah. through effects yeah. Uh, yeah um they did mention that only one of their AP3 lines showed an increase um, in the seal, seed yield in the greenhouse. And obviously when we look at crop plants, we want the seeds. But of course with tobacco, tobacco is not really making seeds. That's not where it's putting its energy in. So it would be interesting to see if this same kind of um, rollover effect where you get an increase in dry ma- mass could also mm. be seed dry mass as opposed to yes. just leaf yeah. dry mass, which we saw with tobacco. Um, and the final um, comment is that maybe there can be further ways to optimize these genes because they're all from foreign species right now. So there's maybe even more we can do with um, the expression and stuff like that, um, which yeah. could make it even better. But I think overall, um, it's super nice paper. It's amazingly successful. Um, and what's what's really cool about it is that they use tobacco, which is a crop plant and which can be grown in ways that mimic other crop plants, um, unlike Arabidopsis, unfortunately. And they also actually did the field trials and, and got some positive results from that. So from that point of view, it's, it's super cool. Do you think this, like the, the method that they used, it relies on chloroplast transformation, right? No, no, they it's, it's, it's transformed in the nucleus. It's all in, ah, okay. Just, so it can be probably more or less easily be adapted to other plants as well. Like easily is always a hard word in plant biology, but it doesn't rely on the possibility to transform a chloroplast. No, 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 no. Yeah. So... Yeah, so that's really exciting. I mean, it could mean that we would see another boom in in crop efficiencies because now this is something that breeders are probably really excited about and use that as the starting material to then improve further on like stress conditions and so on because there's so many like secondary and tertiary um, breeding goals that you want to work for apart from the, the, the yield. I mean, what if these plants are now super susceptible to like lack of water, for example, or something other, something else like this. But it's so amazing to have these like first step done. And now you, the plant breeders can use these strategies to mix that with like other like resistant lines or stuff like that. Yeah, I wouldn't use the phrase plant, plant breeders because this is definitely like a GMO approach. This is definitely, you're not breeding this crap into the plants. Like you have to be putting these external genes in yeah like uh, but depending on who you ask plant breeding and gmo are not exclusive but yeah but yeah just to get it right uh, or not to create any confusion that it's not it's not that you just select naturally occurring plants and then breed them by crossing some natural lines you absolutely have to do gmo to get that it's relying on the frankenstein approach which is, is very cool like it's cool that you can have a gene from e coli or a gene from a, a single-celled algae and you can make a tobacco plant better by putting yeah. What one Arabidopsis gene and one single-celled algal gene was it in the end? No, one um, from from the pumpkin, I think it was. 
this is this is just amazingly cool to me like yeah yeah Rabidops yeah. pumpkin and um yeah yeah and did they do already any optimization for i mean there's for whenever you take a gene from one organism to the other organism and if especially if they're not very closely related these uh, there are sort of secondary structures to genes like coding usage so the 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 type of um DNA bases that are used to encode the information. Um, there are some differences between species, and that reduces efficiency. So often with with clammy, with the algae, you see that when you take an algae gene and you put that into a higher plant, then they don't work as well as they do in the in the algae. Did they do something like that already here? I don't think they did any codome optimization, which is what you're talking about. Um, they they did mention. I mean, they use these different promoters, and they mentioned that because they had these differently selected lines, they could then tell that the the higher the expression of this pumpkate, pumpkin malate synthase and chlamydomonas glycolate dehydrogenase, the higher those were, the, these were the better plants, the ones which had higher expression. So my guess is that they can then use that information to further optimize um, the expression of these things. Um, yeah. Super transform or, or as you said, change, um, change the promoters again, change yeah. the codon usage. So there's like even that. more potential. It's, this is a really cool paper. Yeah, when one person in my um, I was discussing it with a scientist friend. They're actually like, "How how much more can we increase it? Like forty percent is so impressive. Like, is yeah. there more room for um, improvement?" And I guess we we just don't know until somebody tries it, right? Yeah. So yeah. yeah, I mean, until until this paper, many believe we would ha we had hit a wall, right? We had we had only these like very slow gradual increases, but we sort of had hit a wall for major improvements. We had this theoretical idea of changing Rubisco, but it's not something that people just started working on last year. It's, it's improving Rubisco and anything re related about carbon fixation for the respiration has been going on for ages now. And well, there were some voices, some negative voices that said like, maybe it can't be done. Maybe we are in this, the, this enzyme has been evolutionary optimized to this point and there is no real going further and research like this is all, is really exciting when these sort of naysayers get proven yeah wrong. and i guess it's the point like there's, there's different ways of tracking tackling the same problem so the problem is rubisco and there's a lot of people who are either engineering rubisco or engineering the um the environment around rubisco so this is a c4 and the carbon concentrating mechanism groups and these guys basically like, all right, Rubisco is a problem. Let's put that to the side and look at like the downstream like problems that Rubisco. Yeah. Let's treat the symptoms, and this treating the symptoms is actually what ended up yeah. happening. In, and we've yeah, we've been trying to treat the cause, which is the Rubisco, for a long time, and there's some various successes. But yeah, like that's the next big paper, I guess. Like, yeah. yeah. Cool. Very cool. Very nice paper. Um, again, we will link the paper in the description to this podcast in the show notes. You'll find a link there. Um, and then you can have a look at the, the nitty-gritty details of it. And it's open access. We try to choose the open access ones. Yeah, it's uh, same with the plus one paper from before. Um, that was also open access, so you shouldn't have no problem of uh, uh, seeing yourself and checking for yourself. But I guess also on, on your paper, there will be sort of, um, you will find news at articles about it in popular yeah, culture. Yeah, this is, this is super big. I mean, it just came up really a couple of weeks ago and everybody's talking about it. Yeah. Okay, Yarm. Okay. Tell me about your favorite plant. Wait, wait. I have something prepared for that. Ooh. ooh. We're hearing piano music from like the 20s? Yes. It's just... My favorite plant. It's just a little jingle I put in there. <laughs> That's great. Is it it's... your wife? No, it's you. 
from the oh, very first <laughs> episode. Do you want to listen to it again? Yeah, I want to hear it again. No, now that I know it's me, I have to hear it again. I can put it a little bit louder. <laughs> My favorite plant. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, I, uh, yes, should... this is our... Uh, a reoccurring segment of our favorite plant and this week it's my turn mm. and my favorite plant let me just pull up a picture here um it's a pagoda lily or the white headia bifolia um uh, from the family of hyacinthaceae hyacinthaceae we don't do latin it's a um i know hyacinths plants hyacinth in english yeah yeah they are very they're known for this column-like structure they grow this like long flower i'm not a botanist i don't know all of the words stalky bit stalky bit and i've seen this this plant on on twitter um a photo of it and i quite liked it because it makes these uh or maybe you want to describe what it looks like i don't even know how to i mean it looks like it's melted onto the floor it has like basically it looks like lava flowing from a, a well and it's got like two leaves but they kind of just like one of them's flowed out and then the other one's flowed on top the other way it's, yeah and that's yeah. what i found fascinating about it uh, um there's the, yeah it looks like the the leaves are sort of liquid but also solid in, in it's place like the cat of the plant world like it takes liquid form <laughs> when it hits the ground it it melts into any container that, that you give uh, give it it doesn't really though does it no, I don't think it does. Um, there, I've so also cool. seen other pictures of it where it doesn't do as much of the flowing. Um, and yeah, and the other exciting bit about it, its flowers, are, first of all, it's all on ground level. Like the entire plant is not higher than like 20 to 30 centimeters. Um, and the flowers don't have any color to it. And does this tell us something about about the plant and its I guess lifestyle? It's, what it's attracting is not something that sees colors i guess what do insects see a lot of colors then so it's not attracting insects or yeah. it's using smell or pheromones to attract something i mean usually like uh, plants use uh, or the colored flowers to attract certain insects as pollinators to carry out the the pollen from one plant to another for for, for sexual sex. reproduction for exactly for sex and yeah, usually whenever you see a colorful plant, it's probably attracting certain types of insects. And then there's all these adaptions, uh, ad- adaptations from like, insects and plants to each other. Uh, and this one isn't colorful. Um, and as like Tegan is seeing the other pictures here, and we will also no. link those in the in the <laughs> in the show notes. Is this plant doesn't attract insects? It's in- it uh, attracts another pollinator, which is mice. Um, but like really cute mice you guys yes. like a little mouse who's just like burying his face like nom 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 into yeah the and um the there are a couple of plants um in the past um that where it was suggested or even shown that the pollinators are mammals and not uh, insects um there's and there's even a distinction between flying mammals and non-flying mammals because there's fruit bats that also can act as pollinators um, but in this case, it's a mouse, and there's a paper on this uh, very specific plant where, for the first time, they could show photographic evidence that mouse, uh, mice are actually the pollinators. And the 
the nice thing is that they they don't eat the entire plant and then happen to carry over the pollen they just sip the nectar so this plant makes a, a sticky nectar and produces um i think in the in paper i read a, a yeasty smell at night what? to attract the, the mice and then they come they, they suck on the, the nectar they, they drink nectar half the pollen all over their snout and then they start grooming themselves and, and even put it all over their body in the paper they said that they could measure it like on several spaces on the li- the, the mice that they caught life they, they mentioned that they didn't kill the mice luckily um but yeah, so this mice, mouse goes in there, has its snout in the pollen, and walks around. And I quite like that. I quite like this, the plant, how the leaves flow over surfaces, and then it happens to be um, one of the few um, plants where we have photographic proof that um, rodents, or in this case mice, are the, the main pollinators. I think, yeah, rodents happens also in, well, not rodents, marsupial mice happens in Australia with a few species as well. There's yeah. also some cases where it's monkeys, uh, small primates, um, there's a couple of, of mammals that are pollinators, but yeah. it's it's rather the exception than the rule, but it's quite cool. cool. Yeah, very nice. Yes. Okay, and do you have any fun facts for today? Um, uh, <laughs> um, do I? I have one. Okay. Yeah, do your fun fact first. Yeah, I, I mean, this is just something I was looking um, through one of the journals um, for interesting um, articles and... I found one about elevating vitamin A um, in different crop plants. And you've probably already heard about the golden rice project where they try to increase um, vitamin A in rice. It gives it this kind of gold color, that's the name. Um, And it's really important because um, vitamin A deficiency is really um, a a huge problem in developing countries and it can lead to blindness and very severe health problems. So um, this was the golden rice, which, which came up like 20 years ago it first began, I think. Anyway. The entire point of my discussion here is that there's a new thing, a new crop that they've um, engineered vitamin A in, and it's bananas, and the name for it is golden bananas, which <laughs> I think is beautiful because bananas in my eyes are already yeah. quite quite golden. But I'm imagining <laughs> that they're also golden um, inside the fruit as well, but yeah. I just thought that was quite cool. Super yellow bananas. Yeah. Cool. And so these are, they, they have been developed now, and where are they on the track of being actually like in um used as crops is it just this was um an early study so i think this is really the one of the um first the first study in the bananas so this biofortification of bananas um yeah it was a research article yeah cool thank you thank you for that um and with that i think this we're done for today we're not as long as our first episode that's one thing it was still quite long i felt and um, yes, so if you want to learn more about plants and pipettes, uh, mostly plants, we don't talk that much about pipettes, we just use them. But you can <laughs> you can find us on our website, plantsatpipettes.com, and you find uh, every week we, we publish new articles there on all kinds of things related to molecular plant research. Yeah, so there's an article up there about Rubisco and how crappy it is. So if you want some more information about these these Rubisco problems, if, if my terrible explaining during the podcast was not so helpful, um, go check the article out. Um, I think it's called The Greatest Protein on Earth. And we have, uh, you can also find us on Facebook and uh, Twitter. On Facebook, you find us under at plants and pipettes um, or facebook.com slash plants and pipettes. And on Twitter, we are at plants pipettes because Twitter doesn't, uh, ga- didn't give us the end. And we're also on Instagram. And we're also on Instagram, of uh, yeah. And uh, I actually like our Instagram presence a lot. So 
what 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 was our handle there? Plants and pipettes, right? I'm always confused because these all these social <laughs> networks have different length for the usernames. Oh, I thought you just like made a mistake with the Twitter. Okay. No, yeah. it's plants pipettes on Twitter because they yeah they didn't give us the end. It was too too long. Yes. <laughs> follow us on Twitter <laughs> like us on Facebook it helps us a lot um, because then we can uh, uh, get in touch with you guys uh, please make it so it's just not only my mom liking and commenting on posts like that would really be the biggest boost that like. would be really cool and you can also uh, just find the episode on plantsandpipettes.com where you can also comment and ask questions or if we got anything wrong which we obviously didn't but if we got anything <laughs> wrong we will you can definitely have a corrections corner um, next yeah, week for all of my misnaming of the different genes and things like this yes and then thank you for listening and uh, hear you next time bye and here's a little sneak peek into our next episode yeah, I'm going to be talking about whether plants can recognize who their brothers and sisters are and what consequences that has on the plants. So, kin recognition in plants. And I will be talking about vernalization, which is a process of going from vegetative growth to reproductive growth and how that happens on a molecular level. level.